When you look at something like Netflix or Amazon, there are hundreds of films. The algorithm is serving you. The curation model of a movie theater means that somebody has very cleverly and carefully selected what is right for that market, what can I serve up just to a very small number of, of films to a given audience. And so they were basically given a very important role in defining what people saw. This is the Box Office Podcast. I am Daniel Luria, the editorial director of Box Office Pro, the only publication in North America exclusively focused on covering theatrical exhibition. Joined once again by our co-host and chief analyst, Sean Robbins. We will be looking at a number of topics here today. We're going to be starting off with our weekend forecast of Marvel's Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness, the latest title from the Marvel Cinematic Universe to hit screens around the world. We'll also be looking forward here on the calendar, and Sean will be sharing his views on where forecasting is on that Memorial Day weekend at the end of May, when Top Gun Maverick will be opening. We will be talking all about those numbers, all about where everything is. And then in our feature segment, I will be interviewing Ross Melnick, professor of film and media studies over at the University of California at Santa Barbara. We will be talking about Ross's new book, Hollywood's Embassies, How Movie Theaters Projected American Power Around the World. That will be a nice feature conversation going over 90 years of theatrical exhibition history. But let's get right into it this week. Sean, you're back from CinemaCon. Did you get any sleep this weekend? Uh, here and there. Uh, I think going through three different time zones overnight, Thursday into Friday, confused me even more than just being in one different time zone for a week. So uh, hopefully by this coming weekend, I'll finally be on a normal schedule. Uh, how about yourself? Well, you, you have to be on a normal schedule. You have to hit that showtime for uh, Doctor Strange. Do you have That's your true. tickets? Where are you, you going to be watching this? I looks. I'm actually. I'm not sure yet. I have two choices. It will be somewhere in Nashville. It'll. It'll either be a Regal or an AMC. We usually look at prior films whenever we make uh, a box office forecast. Right. We look at previous films in a series with a character with the Marvel Cinematic Universe. This is kind of tricky because characters that are introduced in a film might not have their own standalone film until years later, or as in the case with. Doctor Strange, they may have their own standalone film, but their popularity can grow through supporting and ensemble appearances in future films. So if we go back here to 2016, a simpler time in all our lives, uh, we had Doctor Strange opening to $85 million, playing out to a 232.6 million domestic run. Worldwide, that came in at 677.7 million. How much does that inform what we have in front of us right now? Is this even relevant to talk about after everything that's happened since 2016 as we prepare for the opening of Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness? It, it's not particularly relevant. I think the, the biggest point of relevance it has is the fact that it did those numbers as a character that very few people knew. Doctor Strange opened and earned what it earned not because it was Doctor Strange necessarily, but because it was a Marvel movie by that point. We're two Avengers movies into the franchise in 2016. It's a brand that's selling itself more than its individual characters. So 
you know, Doctor Strange 10 years before, you're, you're probably not even seeing an opening at half of that range. And I think that continues to compound with a sequel after that character has now been in a couple of Avengers and Spider-Man movies. So with that in mind, Sean, we're going to put you on the spot. What's your opening weekend range in North America for the new Doctor Strange movie? Well, I'm always hesitant to finalize these things. We recorded a little in advance, but I, I think the signs are very clear. This is going to have a, a good chance at a 200 million opening. I will not say it's 100% locked because as an analyst, there is no such thing as a 100% chance, but uh, everything seems to be moving in that direction. It's the big summer opener. It's right back in that first weekend of May slash late April spot that Marvel movies have owned for nearly two decades and always done very well. Reviews look positive initially as we're just starting to see those come out. It is on the darker side, which we expected of Marvel movies. It's Sam Raimi leaning into the horror genre quite a bit. I think that will be something to consider with playability and with Marvel's usual family play, but it is still a Marvel movie at the end of the day. So I, I like the odds of, of maybe hitting 200 million, which is interestingly still a May record owned by the first Avengers movie 10 years ago when it opened $207 million. That remains the highest May opener to date. I think that could be on the table for Doctor Strange. As we talk about being grounded, as we talk about being objective, uh, I, I have to bring this up. I mentioned this at a conference call uh, earlier this week on Monday with, with exhibitors. On Thursday morning, coming out of Top Gun Maverick, uh, the world premiere screening at CinemaCon, I have never in my life seen more middle-aged men be so excited. <laughs> it Seriously, it was like a clearance sale at the Home Depot or at Bass Pro Shops. But we have to be objective in our analysis. Where are you currently tracking the opening weekend of Top Gun Maverick? This is going to be one of the harder movies that we track all year, uh, in a large part because of that enthusiastic response. I'll, I'll preface this. Tom Cruise has never had a $100 million opening film. It hasn't even been close, to be honest. Mission Impossible Fallout was around $60 million a few years ago. But on the other side of that, I think Top Gun Maverick is a different beast. I think it has potential to go significantly higher because there is a lot of pent-up demand as a first sequel. It's not the sixth chapter of a franchise that you know you feel like you need to see each one to some extent, at least the most recent Mission Impossibles. And Tom Cruise has an innate appeal, I think, to not just Generation X, but not even just men of a certain age, his his appeal with female audience has always been very strong. It's a generation. I think as yeah. you just mentioned, Sean, he, especially this role, this is Tom Cruise. Tom Cruise is Maverick. And this is a film that I think when that audience segment saw the film at CinemaCon in its world premiere, the film by and large and every reaction we got exceeded every expectation. It hits that demographic perfectly the question here that we have to ask, I have to put you on the spot, do you think it's going to appeal to a wider set of audiences? Because the audience that pushes movies to this blockbuster level here in North America is that 18 to 35 demographic. That demographic doesn't look at Tom Cruise as Maverick they look at him maybe as Ethan Hunt. That will be the big question is how much of the 18 to 35 audience this particular movie can pull out. Maybe it ex exceeds the Tom Cruise aura. I think some of the early numbers we've seen from trailers, from social media campaigns, this film's been marketed for almost three years. 
So there's a lot of data backing up that it, yes, it could be very, very successful. I would argue that a lot of the trends look a lot better than they did for No Time to Die, which feels like the most apt comparison for an, a 35 plus film. And let's let's be very honest here. I think we all expected it to do a little bit better. No Time to Die. When sure. it came out last year, it's a similar demographic. Daniel Craig, a star. We expected No Time to Die to do a little bit better. But at the same time, I think as a film, No Time to Die didn't meet those fan expectations in a way that Top Gun Maverick is clearly exceeding. I mean, the word right. of mouth here, Sean, you have to assume is going to push this title beyond what we would usually assume it's going to hit based on an opening weekend. Yeah, and don't, No Time to Die had some baggage to carry, to be honest. Spectre was very moderately received back in 2015. There were nearly seven years between sequels. This is this is Top Gun, the sequel. It is the only right. sequel in existence to this franchise, and essentially that could make it sort of a new franchise to the younger audience, not unlike Star Wars The Force Awakens or, or something to that effect. I think that's where we have to see, does this kind of a movie with everything it promises and a big summer window, does it attract beyond that crowd? We'll find out. I think the early numbers indicate that it very well could, but it's something we'll definitely have to watch closely over the next few weeks and get a better feel for. Now, it's a moving target. We have to say that to our listeners. Whenever we do forecasting, we update it in at least a weekly basis, sometimes a daily basis, as we get more data points really leading up to that Wednesday before release. So with that caveat, Sean, you've seen the word of mouth already in person, which is very, very impressive. You have three years worth of early marketing data from Paramount, where are you currently tracking the opening weekend for Top Gun Maverick? Right now, I think we're looking anywhere between 90 million and upwards. I would probably go as high as 120 to 130 at the moment. Wow, to okay. me, that feels incredibly bullish. I've been told that that's not the most bullish out there, but you know what? That just my having not seen the film. I think that's also an important perspective that I can add. I have not seen the film. I'm, I'm purely going on what we've observed over the last three years and considering where it's positioned on the summer slate. And considering this is clearly at this point tracking to be the biggest opening weekend for a Tom Cruise movie of all time here domestically. Everything here is adding up, Sean, I think as we've been talking about, to a record-setting opening weekend for the star. And we have every indication to believe that the legs on this one are going to be strong. The word of mouth is going to push this to a much higher multiple than we would usually expect from an opening weekend between 90 and 120. I would definitely agree, especially looking at where we go into in the summer slate. Even though Jurassic World comes out after a couple of weeks, I very easily see theaters splitting those two movies between their, their biggest and best premium screens and it just being a fantastic June between the two of them. We'll be tracking all of that here on the Box Office Podcast and on our website, boxofficepro.com, where you can find Sean's forecasting analysis every Wednesday and Friday on our website. Sean, thanks for joining us. Absolutely. And up next, we've got our interview with Ross Melnick to talk about his book, Hollywood's Embassies, how movie theaters projected American power around the world, now available from Columbia University Press. You can uh, find that anywhere where cool books are sold. Now, let's take it away. Ross, thank you so much for joining us. I'm really excited for this conversation. We were chatting a little bit before recording. We've been following each other's work for a number of years. 
And uh, I expect this to be a, a lively conversation going over many, many countries uh, and probably over 100 years of history. I'm excited. It's great to meet you and great to have a chance to talk about this. So let's, uh, let's start real quick on an aspect where our listeners probably know you a little bit better before we talk about your book. Uh, you launched a website, uh, maybe was it 10 years ago, called Cinema Treasures, which actually documents a lot of exhibition history. And that's openly available online. Uh, for our listeners, Ross is one of those co-founders that put that project up online. You can find it at cinematreasures.org. Can you tell us a little bit about how you came to that project? Yeah, and I'm going to date myself because that website was actually conjured uh, 22 years ago. Um, this was a project that I uh, started with Patrick Crowley, my co-founder, in 1999. We were inspired by a book called Great American Movie Theaters, which was a travel book about going around the United States to see the oldest movie houses. And I realized really quickly, this book is great, but it's 12 years old and no one can update it. And so in a very pre-Wikipedia world, we had an idea about crowdsourcing information. What if we posted information about movie theaters and we asked people to add information, add data, add photographs? So we spent about a year working on that, Patrick and I did. And in December 2000, Again, about 21 plus years ago, we launched cinematreasures.org with about 125 theaters. Today, there are 50,000 plus cinemas from around the world and tens of thousands of photographs. We have an amazing editor, Ken Rowe, who works out of London. And it's a volunteer-based organization that um, if you care about exhibition and you like visiting theaters or you run a theater or you're just interested in cinemas, um, many people have visited and it's used by well, it's used by everyone um, from archivists to uh, to authors, historians, as well as real realtors. So uh, it's I, great to I go about. there all the time. And like you mentioned, it's like the Wikipedia of movie theaters. It's a wonderful, wonderful resource. And that speaks to your background. You're a university professor. You're working on the academic side of exhibition. Not too many people on the academic side as specialized as you are into the history of exhibition, into the evolution of theatrical exhibition over the years. And that leads us into your book. Um, I'm actually gonna plug another book as we begin talking about your book. The frame of reference uh, for me is a book by Richard Abel uh, called The Cine Goes to Town, French Cinema from 1896 to 1914. It's a really interesting history of what happens after that first public exhibition of a film in Paris. That evolution around the mid 1900s, early 1910s, around 1907, to movie going taking on a more theatrical approach to things. So movie going, leaving the fairground, leaving this French countryside type of uh, attraction spectacle basis, and really modeling itself after theaters, after vaudeville. That's probably best exemplified with the opening of the Gaumont Palace in Paris in 1907. Your book starts in 1920. Could you let us know what happens there in that gap? Well, at the risk of self-promotion, I suppose I should mention my previous book, which was American Showman, Samuel Roxy Rothfell and the Birth of the Entertainment Industry, which precisely looks at the changes in exhibition from 1908, uh, specifically in New York, with the Regent, the Strand, the Rivoli, the Rialto, the Capitol, and the Roxy, and essentially the genesis, the development of theatrical exhibition as it moved from 
the sort of smaller Nickelodeon movie house and into the grand entertainment of cinemas that were 1,500, 2,000, 3,000, up to 5,300, and then 5,960 seats. Um, and that happened in a, about a 15-year period, again, from 1913 to 1927, in which a number of exhibitors, Sid Grauman, Samuel Rothfeld, um, were working across the country to really change the way um, people went to the movies, that it wasn't just uh, a screen and um, a projection of motion pictures, but it was a short a newsreel, as well as a stage show, um, music, classical and otherwise, and a whole what we would call an evening's entertainment. And so moving out of a fairground and out of into um, smaller venues and then in the United States from the vaudeville house and then becoming a sort of purpose-built motion picture theater and into this deluxe motion picture entertainment and then what we often refer to as the movie palace in urban centers as well as even the larger neighborhood theaters you see a really huge transformation of the American public entertainment scene in which from the lower class attractions to the middle class, suddenly you have lower, middle and upper class. Everyone is going to the movies. Um, motion pictures are ascendant. Vaudeville is receding. And we begin to think of the world as we do now of a kind of mass entertainment through filmed entertainment. And it's, a lot of it has to do with the way that impresarios essentially drove people to movie houses. And it's that's the period of transition from the teens to the 1920s. And then there are other things to say, and I think not to get too long on it, but of course you think about World War I and mm-hmm. the way that that changed uh, distribution overseas, the decline of the French industry, the decline of the European film industry, the rise of the American film industry, especially as its infrastructure grew around the world, um, which does dovetail into my book. And I'll talk about that when we talk about that. But I will just say the other thing that happens too is that you have another pandemic which happens between 1918 and 1920. Coming out of that, coming out of a huge influx of Wall Street capital coming in the 1910s, uh, the influx of of money that builds these vertically integrated companies in which they're not just producing, distributing film, they're also exhibiting it. And so you have vertical integration and then the 1920s, they have radio and music publishing and licensing. Suddenly you have the entertainment industry we know today. You have vertical and horizontal integration. You have multi-million dollar companies bankrolled by banks and other financiers, you have a global industry that is um, consecrated in just a few number of companies, which at that time, because we didn't yet have a consent decree, are owned by the same companies producing all the most major motion pictures, which then are distributed around the world. What also interests me in finding out in your book is how the movies ended up in movie going ended up being associated as a quote unquote American activity, right? Or an American infused activity. And you mentioned that disruption of World War One. You had well-established national film industries in places like Russia, like Germany, like France, but the U.S. now ends up being exempt from all of that in the 1920s. They have to produce their own content. They have to figure out a way to bring national films from the United States to their own screens. Is it fair to say that the 1920s is when our conception of an American, quote unquote, modern movie theater takes off? Yeah, I mean, there's a number of things that begin to happen. And one of the reasons that the Hollywood studios, specifically um, MGM and Paramount, uh, first and then later with Fox and Warner Brothers. The reason that MGM and Paramount began building cinemas overseas and leasing them and operating them was that they looked at those local contexts and they said, we're not making enough money. 
we're not making enough money from French cinemas, we're not making enough money from British cinemas. And they had a two-pronged idea about operating cinemas overseas. First, they wanted to secure first-run venues in key international cities. They wanted to upgrade exhibition standards. And they also wanted to essentially pressure local exhibitors to raise their prices, raise, again, those standards of presentation. So they realized they could do a number of things all at once, that they could essentially kind of export this American idea of uh, deluxe entertainment that we're talking about it from New York and Los Angeles and other places like that. And then, of course, they could charge a certain dollar figure and they kept all the money. Because if you own the cinema, you not only get, of course, the distribution dollars to that movie house, but you keep the box office. So it was a win-win-win all the way around. And what they would often do is say, we're not getting terms. So the other problem that would happen is there were certain markets Argentina was one, South Africa was another, where local exhibitors were enormously powerful. They owned or uh, managed most of the theaters in a given city, Buenos Aires, Johannesburg, and MGM and others couldn't get in. Or if they did, they had to take very, very bad terms. So what they realized was, well, look, we really want to make sure we have a beachhead. We have at least one, what they referred to as a shop window cinema, which essentially like a kind of uh, shop window display to not only just show people within a country how MGM films should be presented, but it was also really kind of like a trade event. Because if you were a smaller th- uh, exhibitor who was in Leeds or you were somewhere else in Link- England, you would come into London to see how Paramount would present its own films at the Plaza. Or by 1928, you'd go to the Empire to see how MGM would present the MGM films. And that was also there for a kind of display model you know, a shop window that would allow exhibitors to take back the, oh, this is how they did the lobby. This is how they presented uh, the, the the stage show. This is what they did to present that film. And again, you get the money at the box office, you secure a first run venue, you begin to pressure local exhibitors to either charge the same amount or present the same kind of projection technologies. And when you start thinking about sound and then later widescreen, you're also infusing these cinemas directly with technologies that you think will obviously attract moviegoers, but also begin to uh, export the technologies that your company, whether it's Cinemascope or if it's Vitaphone, are implementing. So there are many, many, many reasons why these theaters grew in the 1920s, all of which began to excite audiences about the American model, which is that, wow, here's this amazing film. Here's this amazing theater. Listen to that amazing sound. And the other piece of this is in certain countries, very few uh, prints were shipped to given countries. And so if you went to one of the shop window display theaters in Buenos Aires or Rio or London, you got to see the film before it got scratched, <laughs> before it got- it Pristine got, before, condition right there. Pristine, which means that it was the best presentation was at the American movie house. And they had all the other trappings. I will say then just one more thing, which is that if you look at what MGM did in places like uh, uh, Bombay now Mumbai or, the, or Cairo, they developed kids clubs, what they called the cub clubs. And it was a chance to essentially inculcate a new generation of moviegoer by getting the kids interested in Coca-Cola, Nabisco, chocolate cake, Saturday matinees, <laughs> Tom and Jerry cartoons. So this and was these a are holistic- all parts of American culture, right? I mean, yes. these are all things that are not intrinsic to what is now being defined as a movie theater. At this point in, in time, what that physical space looks like, that moviegoing experience is still getting defined. So this concept of a shop window cinema that you bring in in your book is really what ends up taking off as the, let's say, quote unquote, best place to watch a movie, no matter where you are in the world. 
Yeah, and this, and you know, the U.S. State Department was very clear about the value of American films and American movie theaters overseas. Like nothing sold a Ford automobile like seeing it in the movie. Nothing right. sold uh, certain kinds of concessions by having them in foreign foreign movie houses. So there is all of this work that these theaters are doing. Um, presenting these kinds of films and having these kinds of products and having these kind of uh, adventures. The other thing I would say too is that in some instances there were countries where class standards and who, class and even racial organizations was very clear inside the movie house and the American standard was supposedly for many markets they tried to break those local standards in order to sell this kind of vision and I talk about the problems of doing that uh, later in the book when they went to places like South Africa very famously uh, racially segregated market, which had a different kinds of complications. So the one thing that was always really fascinating about this research is how much there's the mission of Hollywood, there's the mission of the U.S. State Department, and then there's the local conditions. You know, and those are always the challenges: is trying to deal with British uh, upset about American in in incursion, <laughs> you know, uh, Middle East conflicts as they dealt with in Cairo and Tel Aviv, and how all of these things played out at our innocent, lovely movie house. Which was, which was always part of moments of either philo-Americanism or quite um, strongly uh, held anti-U.S. sentiment. And always, one last thing to say, too, is that this is often the first American building in a major city. So before you had McDonald's, before you had Disneyland. This and is all your these, cultural export. And you can't is, yeah. have the film unless you have the movie theater. And it's fascinating to, to me to learn that that concept is from the start in its export uniquely American. Yes. And it's one that people recognized very clearly was something that was um, exotic. And we don't always think about American things as exotic, <laughs> but it is worth remembering that if you live in Barcelona in 1923, the American movie house is exotic because, because people are suddenly excited by this American Hollywood. And that was a very big thing that was marketed, obviously, um, in Los Angeles and elsewhere, the idea of Hollywood and the movie house, therefore, was like a way to visit your dreams and your fantasies and marketed very much so as if you love Charlie Chaplin, if you want to see Mary Pickford, you could visit them at this place and we'll give you this program which has their picture on it. And you can take that home and put it on your wall. And so these kind of collecting practices, this sort of identification, commodification, all of the things that would excite people about going and collecting were beginning to happen as well at all of these movie houses. So when and where does this export of the American concept of a movie theater begin? There's a different sentiment of what an American movie house is through every period. And we can see that, of course, in the uh, the 1980s versus the 2010s. The 1920s is really interesting in terms of that's when the book begins. It's really interesting that in Germany, you have people like Siegfried Krakauer saying, we have this influx of American movie theaters. These are not like German cinemas. These are these fantasy lands of all of this kind of live and other entertainment. And they're very different than what we've had before. You have a very British conception of here comes this American movie house concept. They're bringing in variety and they're bringing in all of these kinds of um, very American techniques. And so I think the situation is really one that's culturally conditioned. And some of it is also about architecture. It's about bringing in, you know, a uh, very stylized kind of art deco cinema, but really it's about management. I mean, I know it sounds a little boring to say, 
But what these companies did was they always sent managers who were American. So whether it was in Calcutta or whether it was in Tel Aviv, they were sending American managers to replicate exactly what they were doing. And in that way, they operate the other way that I talk about the shop window, which is as a quote unquote cultural embassy, which actually reflected a kind of American embassy model, which is that you had an American citizen operating overseas who then managed local staff. And that was a very smart thing to do because it meant that all of the local staff that worked in these theaters in, you know, in Paris and what have you understood French customs. They obviously understood what the locals would want, but you always got the American techniques and they brought in, you know, American projection equipment, American sound, American air conditioning systems. They brought in the American usher uh, outfits. They brought in everything that would replicate everything from the U.S., but they always did it in a kind of, uh, local slash exotic ways so that you felt the excitement of an exotic institution and temple, if you will, and you came inside and you got the comforts of home. You know, they replicated certain color schemes that were familiar, but on the outside, for the most part, neon lights, big uh, MGM, Paramount, Warner Brothers emblems that would bring people from across the, but then once you came inside, you would have the sense of like, this is this interesting thing. I feel like I'm in a foreign establishment, but I also do it the way that I want. And Typically, they either have it dubbed in the language that I speak, or obviously it's subtitled uh, in a language. So it always had that kind of ability to um, capture people from the outside, but then make them feel very comfortable and familiar at, at home. Now, in your book, you go into some detail on the ideological aspect, the political ideology of this effort. And that really starts to take a more pronounced effect during World War II and that post-war era as we enter the Cold War. Could you go into that a little bit on that effect that the war has on making sure that there is also a little bit of ideology snuck in to the movie-going experience? Germany and the United States are kind of playing a cat and mouse game around exhibition. They saw movie theaters as not just the transmission of feature films. They saw them as, again, a kind of embassy to transmit local information entertainment media directly to the citizens of a given country. They fought this out in Brazil. They fought this out around the world where they were trying to build, you know, UFA, Nazi-oriented cinemas, and then American Hollywood-oriented cinemas. And remember that at this point, we're talking 1930s and 1940s, it's not just about feature films. We've got shorts and we have newsreels. Right. And the newsreels are being directly made in Germany under the Nazi management and ideological organization. And in Hollywood, they're increasingly... Uh, in concert with the war effort and being, and then of course during the war, absolutely. Just to bring it back to a contemporary context, you know, movie theaters, even contemporary multiplexes, say a 12 screen multiplex is probably only going to be showing, you know, eight films, maybe six. When you look at something like Netflix or Amazon, there are hundreds of films. The algorithm is serving you. The curation model of a movie theater means that somebody has very cleverly and carefully selected what is right for that market. What can, what can I serve up just to a very small number of, of films to a given audience? And so when you're talking about single screen theaters, which is what we're talking about in the 30s and 40s, you know, the major movie house of Cairo or the major movie house of Johannesburg or the major movie house of, uh, of Paris or any other place around the world where, where these films were being shown and these theaters existed, they were basically given a very important role in defining what people saw. Because they attracted people from around uh, around the, the city, from multiple kinds of backgrounds and multiple classes. And so when they were able to project an anti-Nazi newsreel, or in some cases when you're talking about uh, UFA, 
you're talking about the ability to transmit Nazi sympathetic or even Nazi promoting uh, information directly to moviegoers. So the movie theater is not a um, not the same thing as uh, as your Twitter feed. It's really <laughs> very different. You know, it is it is a staged bit of two to three hour content back then. That also, if you go back to something that the very famous theater architect S. Charles Lee said, right, which is that the show starts on the sidewalk. You know, it's the idea again that you know everything that's happening as you're walking up to the marquee. The you know the the, the neon bulbs, the the lettering on the marquee, the lobby display, everything inside the movie theater, including how the audience reacts to things, everything is kind of programmed and organized. And that's giving you an opportunity to um, to really curate a feeling, a sentiment, an ideology. But there are, you know, one thing I will say just as a kind of a zoom out from the book is that the book basically has six regions that it's dealing with, or six areas. So this is going through Latin America and the Caribbean. It's going through Asia, Middle East, Africa, Europe, Australia, New Zealand. And this kind of thing plays out differently across every region, actually from country to country within that region. Every decade seems to change. And as I make an argument many times, there's really actually no, there's no company specific strategy in some cases. The companies don't even agree on strategy. So rather than a grand strategy, which you would imagine would have been created at the MPAA or would have been done within the theater owners of America, or in this case, within the Hollywood back rooms, they really relied on the local executives that they hired who were, you know, sort of managers of given countries or managers of their regions to give them a sense of, What's our plan if we were to try to build a, a cinema, you know, in Australia and <laughs> then finding out that, well, Warner, as Warner Brothers did, that nobody wanted them to be in Australia, including 20th Century Fox because it owned Hoyts. And so you have all these issues of just trying to figure out um, how to get into certain markets, which are being protected by local exhibitors, sometimes even local politicians, and then sometimes just by even your own Hollywood competition. Well, I mean, one of the most famous examples of that is probably Warner Brothers International Theater slash Warner Brothers International Cinemas, which went into China after the WTO and began to build uh, cinemas in partnership with local operators, including Dali and Wanda. And after a number of changes in what were then called the Foreign Investment Enterprises Laws, they realized this was getting to be a kind of insane place to do business. One day you can own 49% of a business, then you can have 75% of the business, then you throw more money in and suddenly the Chinese government changes its mind and you go back to 49% interest. And Warner Brothers <laughs> said, you know, this is, this is no way to run a business, you know? And so, you know, eventually they said the market is full of opportunity, but it's just also just full of chop. And so in the end, what they did was they came out. But on the other hand, you look at uh, CJCGV, which is in China. You look at IMAX, which is in China. So foreign companies have done business and others have decided to leave. And it's just part of um, these very specific moments when people decide to go in. And some are really, they really are, take advantage of going in early. And sometimes the market isn't yet at a maturation level where you can see a kind of equilibrium that allows businesses to flourish. And I think that was sort of what happened in a way um, with, with WBIC in China in the 2000s. We saw in the United States in this post-war era, a massive population shift when we talk about demographics leaving from urban centers where they are catered to and serviced by a shop window cinema in the US. Those audiences leave. And that nice, big, palatial movie theater goes through some hard times in the late 60s and the 1970s. Eventually, we see this concept of suburbanization 
come into the U.S. exhibition business, also through the multiplex in the 1980s and 90s, where the movie theater is no longer operating through this shop window model, but is now operating as this suburban type connection outside of major cities. What was the impact of that on international markets? Well, I mean, there was a really a huge, and this is a, it's one thing that you can definitely say, there was a global transition from these uh, massive movie houses, which had been built in the 20s and 30s, and into a steep decline. And you can see that decline in Johannesburg, and, and, and you can see that decline in Rio de Janeiro. You can see that decline in many, many, many markets. A lot of the same reasons. It's not just you know the perceptions of crime or demographic change. A lot of it actually is about uh, rising real estate values, um, changing uh, distribution patterns, changing distribution desires amongst audiences who don't want to see paint your wagon, but they actually want to go see uh, Shaft. And so suddenly you have the desire of multiplex, which can program different kinds of films for different kinds of audiences, especially as the ratings in the United States, at least as the ratings industry begins and as you begin to get this kind of uh, split audience attraction. So instead of having these sort of Hollywood's conception of a general audience that will see everything, you now have films which are for the family audience or films that are for the adult market. And so you can have them all within a multiplex. And what begins to happen is with all of the, real, the rising real estate value in these downtown areas is it's not profitable. And for many of these exhibitors, it was not profitable anymore. It's much more profitable to sell these buildings. And so the shift is in, and this doesn't just happen in the suburbs. I mean, even in many cities, what you see is uh, um, the old movie houses get split up. Mm -hmm. So the balcony is walled off and into its own screen. They split the downstairs into three. And now you've got terrible sound bleeding through the walls. Uh, you've got, you know, poor, you know, sight lines and it's a kind of a mess. And so people get upset with those things and they see, oh, there's a brand new fourplex that may be two blocks away or maybe it is out in the suburbs. But regardless, it becomes part of a new transition that begins to happen where Hollywood is moving more and more away. By the 1970s, most of the uh, of Hollywood, as we think about it with MGM and Fox and Warner Brothers and those companies, most of them are actually leaving uh, the idea of running cinemas. They're selling off their older houses. They're figuring out, like, you know, Fox sells all of its African theaters by 1975. It's already out of South Africa and uh, uh, Colonial Zimbabwe by 1969. And you begin to see more and more of this transition to these new companies like CIC and uh, UGC and these other companies, which are going to be these conglomerates, some of them backed by Paramount and Universal, some of them backed by Warner Brothers and others, where you have these conglomerates who are running a much more efficient system with suburban and urban cinemas, which can really attract a pared down world that doesn't require a 3000 seat house and doesn't think you, you can fill it, but sees a reason to build multiplexes. And this, the, the real change in all that is that you are having, actually have a, an opportunity now to have a, a lot of new kinds of content, but it does mean that this is no longer a priority for the quote unquote studios. And I should make something really clear. I'm sure there might be some confusion, confusion maybe amongst some listeners thinking, I'm confused. I thought after 1948 slash 1959, that period where all of the supposed studios divest their theater chains by the consent decree, that of course, and everyone listening to this knows this, that is of course not true internationally. You only had to get rid of the domestic, right? So the internet, the studios actually kept their foreign cinemas. The domestic chain did not keep up with those. So they start to look at the foreign cinema holdings, which used to be a real boon to keep up those revenues that they lost through the divorcement. 
But at some point, you've got a huge amount of debt. You've got a ton of overhead. You've got aging cinemas that require upkeep. You've got heating and air conditioning bills. And of course, people are desiring the new. They want to go to drive-ins. They want to get in some markets. They want to go to those big suburban uh, cinemas, which are being built out in other places. And sometimes they want to go to multiplexes. And um, the decline of places like some places, uh, the downtown so-called street cinemas became less and less desirable during those, those periods. So the transition from the kind of shop window model, the older single screen model into the multiplex was jarring for everyone, but it was also because it was a way to make uh, a good bit of, get a lot of debt off the books and make a good bit of money by selling, selling your real estate holdings. Right. And it's just interesting as we go into the 90s, even as these divestments happen, if we just look at it from a purely conceptual level, the development of cinemas in a lot of markets, especially in Latin America, for example, becomes wholly dependent on building a new shopping mall. You now end up a bit with a business model that is very US centric on the macro scale as well, where your anchor movie theater is part of a quote unquote American shopping experience abroad. And you see that with the evolution of a market like Brazil today, where it's very, very unlikely to see a new cinema or an existing cinema even still be in operation anywhere outside of a shopping development that looks like something you could see in uh, in Connecticut or Rhode Island any other day. Yeah, the street cinemas, unfortunately, went away quite quickly uh, during that period of the 80s, 90s and zeros. I mean, no more a striking cinema you could find in Brazil would be the, you know, the Metro Boa Vista, which was in, in Sinalangia and in, in Rio, you know, which replaced an earlier Metro Paseo that had opened in 36. And at the very end of the 1960s, when people were building these big Dimension 150 houses for, you know, that were like just a giant screen that would, that would perfect for all those roadshow attractions. That was great in the 1960s when people were really excited about those films. And then you move into the kind of Star Wars land of the 1970s. By the time you get to the 1990s, you know, there were many things going on in, in certain markets. And, so, and one of which is the perception of safety. And, you know, the way that shopping malls attracted people, not just in the U.S., but also overseas, is that there was the perception of privatized spaces, you know, providing security guards, sticking movie theaters on the top level of shopping so that you get this perception that within the wholly enclosed private you know, building, you have this element of security that a street cinema cannot provide. The, what's lost in that moment, of course, is that, and this is no offense to uh, anyone operating within a shopping <laughs> mall, you are subsumed within the larger real estate project. Right. You know, you are often named for the name of the of the of the mall of the real estate complex you're no longer you know the paramount the hoyts the regent you're now the name your chain uh crossings 12 you begin to lose your your sort of again that kind of um that architecture of fantasy and that idea that the show starts on the sidewalk because it isn't starting on the sidewalk it's not even starting on the escalator i mean right. it's basically starting when you're standing at the box office you know outside of a, of a of a clothing store it's a very different kind of model and and the real excitement of of the american movie house overseas uh it, whether again it was in uh in sydney or whether it was in tokyo or what have you is that it was this very Hollywood edifice, which was in jarring transition often to either colonial architecture or the local aesthetic. You suddenly had this exoticized Hollywood experience right on your street, 
which was really about calling people's attention to it. Subsumed inside a mall, you are another attraction that usually uh, you know, a real estate company may have used to get bank financing because they had a couple of anchor tenants, you know, a department store and a movie house. Right now, when you're just a single screen, you were the attraction. And we are seeing right now, I think, a little bit of a reverse, as you note in the epilogue to your book. Really, the 2010s is a great example of multinational circuits outside of the U.S. looking at the U.S., already a mature market, already an established market, by some counts and by some opinions, overscreened, and looking at that as an opportunity for growth. Yeah, I mean, it was a, it's a very interesting irony that one of uh, Warner Brothers' earliest partners in China, Dalian Wanda, of course, became uh, at one time the owner of AMC, and then AMC, now owned by Dalian Wanda, became the 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 engine for more acquisitions around the world. But there were many different companies that were looking to come into the U.S. for all kinds of reasons. Um, there was the Reliance. Phoenix model of, uh, of Indian cinemas around the United States. CJCGV still operates a number of, uh, of Korean cinemas, which it refers to very interestingly as a culture plex. The idea that these are not just Korean movie houses. This is a kind of another kind of cultural embassy by which you come inside to Korean culture, which is so prominent and so, uh, exciting right now in the international stage. And there are more than that. Of course, Cinepolis, you know, a Mexican company has been a huge player in the American market, as well as in India and many other markets. And so it suddenly was very interesting that as the American companies, and these were often American studios, were getting, you know, sort of shedding their exhibition divisions, uh, you actually began to see huge rising exhibition chains from outside the United States, recognizing whether it's Cineworld and Regal, um, seeing what's happening in the U.S. market and seeing an opportunity for a space that's undergoing a great amount of change. And I think that no greater change, of course, has happened than in the last two years in terms of what is the future of theatrical exhibition in the United States and therefore how ripe is this market for investment, takeover, acquisition, you name it. And so the questions that I think have been raised in part um, during that time is what's next for this market? which has always been the number one market. And right now, you know, you look at China. But what's happening with the U.S. market is really about the future of not just exhibition, but the future of how film studios see the importance of theatrical exhibition. Ross Melnick's book, Hollywood's Embassies, How Movie Theaters Projected American Power Around the World, is available now through Columbia University Press. You can buy that at any place where cool books are sold. Cool books, that's how I'm calling it. And thanks again to Sean Robbins and Ross Melnick for joining us in this edition of the Box Office Podcast. We are going to be back next week, as we are every Thursday here. So please, if you like what we're doing, rate us, like us on social media, subscribe to the podcast, tell your friends about us. That helps us continue doing what we do every Thursday here. The Box Office Podcast is produced by Box Office Pro in collaboration with the Box Office Company and Record Edit Podcast. Thank you again for joining us. Mm -hmm.